Hello, listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Club of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty B. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Professor Claude Taylor, Director of Academic Transition and Inclusion, and also the leader of our very important First to Fly program at Monmouth University. Welcome to the show, Claude. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for this invitation to help mark and celebrate the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I'm very excited and ready to go. So uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the chance to be in, in dialogue with you. So as Claude said, this is the first of a series of uh, shows on the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Uh, these shows are sort of going to commemorate this important uh, development or this per- this important moment in uh, history and clo- history and culture, not just U.S. history, obviously, because hip hop is, go- is a global movement. So that is our focus today. Claude, you've been on the show a few times. You're one of my favorite guests, uh, but I still like to introduce you again to our, you know, expanding audience. Tell us a little bit about your research and teaching interests. I will. Thank you, Dr. Williams and Hetty. Um, I'm going to make this part short so that we have plenty of time to get into Good. the beach rhyme and life here a bit. Um, so I am in my 17th year here at Monmouth University. Uh, My home department is communication, and I am uh, trained in rhetoric and rhetorical criticism and public communication. So I'm a communication studies uh, generalist at the time. So I I hold a a lecturer position here at Monmouth. But of course, as you mentioned, uh, I serve the university as academic transition and inclusion director and, and head up the First to Fly program, which is uh, a really important way for me to connect with our first-gen students. And it gives me the opportunity to express my commitment to educational justice. And I think that's going to actually come through in our discussion today. Um, I study discourse, meaning, and identity so that, that, that I've really come to understand my scholarly interest to be moving and interwoven in those three areas, discourse, meaning, and identity. And of course, one of my uh, central concerns is social class and, and social stratification. So um, that, that makes up the kind of focus of my intellectual and scholarly interest. Right. I think you're, you're really the perfect person to talk to as you know, a scholar of rhetoric and discourse this is kind of really one of the topics that m- make a lot of sense, I think, and uh, talking to you about. Uh, so what about some of the favorite courses do you teach? Have you ever taught any courses on hip hop? Or I'm sure you incorporate yeah, into so, the so, classes. So here's my chance to give a shout out to my colleague, uh, Dr. Aaron Ferguson in communication. So we have been in preliminary talks about developing a course here at Monmouth that's specifically about the sort of cultural history of hip hop and, and the music industry kind of uh, uh aspects and the cultural aspects of it. It hasn't got far off the ground, but I know Ferg and I have been in in conversation about doing that. Um, I teach uh, intro to communication, which is really the the survey course at the beginning. And I love teaching that because it, it 
keeps me grounded in the discipline and helps me to sort of introduce the field of study to students here at Monmouth. But I also teach communication ethics and media literacy. Uh, one of my favorite courses is Gender, Race, and Media, which I haven't had a chance to teach recently, but that is a place where some of um, my thinking and interest in hip hop comes in to our gender, race, and media class. But I also did introduce like some of the themes of the evolution of black music and hip hop in my uh, special topics course that was called communication and social class. And I was really, that was, that ran twice. And I was really proud of that and, and want to get back to doing courses like that here. And then the other thing I'll say, just connected to how I've been tracking hip hop and, and black music in my work too, is a course that I created at Rutgers in the School of Communication that's actually still on the books called Communication and Social Change. And so mm. many, many years ago when I was a, a doctoral student at, at, at Rutgers, I wrote this course, I was asked to write a course uh, about communication and social change. And this is around 2000, 2001, right in that area. And of course, I was just coming off the heels of living through this rich history of hip hop that we'll talk about today. And so I try to include some of that in a course like that too. Right. And I know your popular course on, uh, about media, because I hear a lot of your, a lot of your students used to cross over into my, um, my Spike Lee course. Right. The perspectives course, right? Yeah. Yes. They, a lot of them would bring, you know, knowledge from that course that you teach into that class. A lot of uh, communication students usually take it. So let's turn our focus to 1980s hip hop and just some of there's such a long list of uh, individuals that were active during this era and often referred to as the golden age of hip hop. LL Cool J, Slick Rick, the Jungle Brothers, Run DMC, Public Enemy, uh, KRS-One, Queen Latifah. There's so many, so many that I can't even list so them many. all. So let's start with your favorite. Mm. Let's start with 1980s. Okay. Let's talk about, I want to get your personal perspective, and then we'll talk about, you know, how you get interested in it as a scholar of rhetoric. All right. So this is a great opportunity to tell this story. I'm a, I'm going to try to be succinct here, but I'm really, in, in preparing for this discussion today, I realized that I essentially grew up in and through the development of hip hop and into this golden era that we're talking about. So I, I was quite fortunate in my estimation, I was quite fortunate to be born into a fairly African diasporic music culture and journey when I, I came to consciousness about music. So I grew up with, you know, West Indian parents and also parents from you know, the rural North Carolina, the rural South here in the United States. So we had jazz and blues and Caribbean, so reggae and dance hall, but also like Jamaican folk music around me. So I heard and was listening to a lot of that. And then the other thing about like the mid to late seventies is that radio really drove a lot of consumption of music, uh, at least in my experience and, and in and then around my family and people that I knew. So the radio was pretty eclectic at that time too, that you could hear like Marvin Gaye, one song, and then the Doobie Brothers, the next song. And so 
uh, one of the things that happened is that, you know, the rise of disco and my older brother, Roger, was uh, uh, really, that was his era because he graduated in 1977. Disco was his music. So I got to listen to a lot of disco music. And and I'm a fan. I love disco. But the kind of, uh, what is this called? The inflection point was when I was walking home from school in fourth grade. It was either fourth or fifth grade. And I heard the Sugar Hill Gang the, for the first time. Rapper's Delight. And that That's song, right. right? So what I heard, and it's so diasporic, it's just I love the the way this came together. So I love Chic. Chic was one of my and Niles Rogers and Chic was one of my favorite bands, even before I could even buy records on my own. And so I heard the track behind it, you know, Good Times is the track behind the Sugar Hell Gang. And that was often credited as like one of the, if not the first breakthrough mainstream hit that featured hip hop and rap. And so that's where I was like, oh, okay. So all these different kinds of music that I enjoy are a part of this new or emerging art form, right? And so from there, what really captured my attention was the, the, the this key, key element was sampling, right? So if you track this evolution of hip hop, it the music, the sound behind the MCing, was all this really intricate sampling, and we could talk about the sampling policy and communication policy around copyright at some other time. But I could hear all these jazz songs and the riffs from jazz and R and B, and then the major turning point for me is when reggae started to get infused into to hip hop. And that would be Karis One and uh, Boogie Down Productions, which is, I'm going to go on record right now saying that's my favorite MC and my favorite band from the era, the, my favorite group. So that's where you saw all of that. Uh, I, I, I tracked through the evolution of that just in my music journey. The other thing I wanted to say as a part of this question, too, is how radio served as community. Because um, 98.7 KISS and WBLS and WLIB in, in New York, and to a lesser degree, 92 WKTU, which had a different format at that time in the late 70s, early 80s. This is where I got in, really got exposed to, to much of the music at that time, right? Because I didn't live in the boroughs. I figured we were in Metro New York. So I, I we heard a lot of it in the uh, on the radio and in our neighborhood because people were blasting their radios. And that's really where I got. And then when I got a little older and got an allowance, then I could buy cassettes and albums, cassettes and CDs. Yeah. I I mean, it's such a, it's such an important age. I'm just looking at a list of some of the songs from that era. And there's so many major, uh, like Houdini, mm. Run teams. Yes. I mean, you can't. It's it, it, it's massive. You can't contain it in a single podcast. Yeah, really, I, I, honestly. So that's what I was thinking too. Let me just run off a couple because I think there's two questions here. I'm gonna try to address two things. Like some of my favorite songs from the era, but then some of the definitive acts. So like we okay. talked about Boogie Down Production, but Eric Bean, Rakim, that um, yes. oh, um, paid in full. That album, I remember holding it and listening to it over and over and over again. Pete Rock and CL Smooth. We mentioned Jungle Brothers. Public Enemy, EPMD, uh, another favorite of mine, the Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul for sure, Busta Rhymes, Cool Cool G Rap. People forget about my man Cool G Rap, um, Big Daddy Kane, the Fugees mm-hmm. for sure. 
um, Wu Tang, Black Moon, Smith and Wesson, Fat Joe. I mean, there's just it goes on, and this is just scratching the surface. But uh, I do think uh, Jungle Brothers two stood out to me. So I had just gotten to college when that Jungle Brothers album came out, and it was on auto play, auto replay forever. <laughs> that first album because that's when I got introduced to Q Tip and some of the other like really big performers uh, on that. But then. A couple more, Gangstar and uh, and um, Bismarcky. So, ladies and gentlemen, listeners in the audience, if you've not had the opportunity to listen to Bismarcky, go find you know on iTunes or wherever you get your get your music. Listen to Bismarcky because he's an artist, and he just passed away in 2021. But I think he embodies this this mix of entertainment. And uh, Black Joy that I just, I feel we, because we, when you go through his catalog, you'll realize some of the biggest like party hits of hip hop, Bismarck, has got his name on. Yes, definitely. And I think satire too, because if you look at the video for you say he's just a friend, <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot like it's comedy. It is it's, comedy. You know, you had these heavy hits like the, the message and the political songs, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you also had these songs, like you said, about joy and, you know, commentary to the community, which is a constant anyway. But also I think he fuses, because it's also the time, the rise of the music video. Yes. You know, and how he uses it. And um, with that particular video, uh, Run DMC to Walk This Way mm-hmm. is is going to be big. I remember... I remember my my sister bought a copy. I think it was a cassette of Raising Hell. Yes. I had the album. I actually had the vinyl LP. My brother, so my brother Brian and I are are partners in crime in our his in our hip hop history. So he's just a he's two or three years younger than me. And we have the he holds most of it. He's the archivist. He's in this massive catalog of hip hop from our era. And we had this debate about who our favorite MCs were not too long ago, just a couple of days ago. And that Run DMC album came up. And, and I was like, look, that was a foundational album. Even though people like to sort of minimize or marginalize Run DMC, Run, and, Run was a for real MC. And we know that they had a huge global impact. Yeah, I think just what you just said, a lot of people would probably uh, sometimes forget about them because they get seen as kind of going after that pop dollar, mm-hmm. right? Because they have all, you know, they make this um, connection to rock music. But when you look back at the impact of Raising Hell mm-hmm. and the fact that they make those connections across genres, yes. It's, that, it's, it's a part of the reason why this is called the, glo- the the golden age. And look, if you really do, in a fair-minded way, think about their contribution, like they help to pioneer the public performance of hip-hop in, in venues and on tour and, and really giving voice to the art form, elevating it. And look, and they give credit to their inspirations and, and their influences too. If you really go back and listen to the interviews uh, over time, uh, but they, they really were the vanguards of what became the 
mainstream global version of hip hop that started to circulate in 1986, 87, 88. Yeah. At least from my view, in my view. Yeah. Because I think their album, I think it was Raising Hell that went platinum and sold all those records. And like, that was the crossover moment, like mid eighties, I would think. And uh, we can't forget about Dougie Fresh. Mm, yes. And the Get Fresh crew. Ooh. Yeah, that's another way. So many of them. It's so like, many. And this is what, um, uh, so I was in conversation again with my, my, my co-archivist, my brother, and I were talking about the, what I guess some music industry people would call one hit wonders who had some really important impact because the, the songs, the lyrics and the tracks really did make, you know, have had a lasting impact within the hip hop culture. So, I mean, when people start looking back at their catalog or talking about like who the top, this top 50, top hundred, top, whatever, you know, you start to prioritize and listening a lot of artists, a lot of rappers, MCs who didn't have like longitudinal success, meaning long-term success, but had hits that were like hot all the time. And they were the dope, track at that moment um, we got to give them credit because that all fed that the emergence of the culture and what i and i guess we'll get to this in a bit um i am in the camp that refers to hip-hop as a movement and so the movement so if hip-hop the movement is built upon the narratives of all of these contributors and and so i do think you know yes there are people who are six and seven and eight albums deep but also, I think there's you know one-off hits that are really important here as well. No, I think you're absolutely correct because I think because this era, the 1980s, is producing so many great uh, works that it's easy to overshadow somebody who didn't have mm-hmm. the su- success of Run DMC or LL Cool J that you know had multiple albums or records that went you know on the charts, but um, how why do so how and why do you, do you think of a hip hop music and culture you know why did it, so this is the time that it became global mm-hmm. um we talked about run dmc what other artists or moments helped to make the culture the music the vibe global mm. uh you mentioned part of my answer to this is part you mentioned it earlier um i think we seriously cannot discount the impact of Fab Five, Freddie, and Yo MTV Raps, because right, yeah. MTV, and yeah, MTV yeah. Raps, Yo MTV Raps was, uh, I think, a critical platform for the global expansion of hip hop. Uh, you know that mm-hmm. time slot. And I, I think if I, and my memory is foggy, but I think it started as a thirty-minute program, a thirty-minute segment, but then it got out to an hour. I can't remember exactly if it started as an hour or if it was just a half hour, but people, at least in my circles, people ran to that TV <laughs> for Yo MTV raps every week. Mm-hmm. So I knew part of it was like, so part of the global scale is the, like the the emergence, the rise of music videos as a form of entertainment. The second thing I would say is, look, we can see just the, historical trajectory of black music because i can't help but just put hip-hop in the continuum of blues and jazz and rock and roll that you know start with 
a kind of folk sensibility and local sensibility. And then you just, it's just black music's popular. Right. And I just, Mm -hmm. I feel like it's important to say that. Um, I also think that the portability and circulation of music. So here I'm thinking about cassette tech, cassette tapes and CDs and the, the global impact of Sony Walkman also gave uh, a lot of fuel to the global spread of um, of hip hop, and then my final thinking, my final thing I'm thinking about here is just the the diasporic hybridity of of hip hop. Because, like I said, for me, I heard reggae in Boogie Down Production songs, I heard jazz in Pete Rock and CL Smooth, I heard even rock, even like giving credit to rock and roll. If we're saying that rock music really grew out of African-American musical experience. So you hear the rock music themes going through the guitar riffs and that, that, um, you know, that kind of improvisation. So I do think the Africana diaspora hybridity of, of hip hop gave rise to that too. Yeah. I think that's, that's well said because you you can think about, you know, the hybridity of jazz music, right? That goes global too. And there's, you know, various reasons for that. But I even argue, maybe some pe- people might get mad at me <laughs> for saying this. I had this conversation uh, with someone a couple of days ago about, I actually think it's hip hop that is in many ways surpasses jazz mm. in terms of its impact and influence on not only American music, but global music. I agree with that. I would agree with that. I I think it's a hard thing to uh it's a hard concept to to accept, but you know, jazz and and jazz is struggling for audience right now and I think the work uh I do you know, I, I know the folks at Jazz at Lincoln Center are working diligently to try to you know, kind of, uh, this is Marsalis, Bradford, uh, Quentin, Clinton, uh, Quentin Marsalis, I think. No, one of the brothers. Winton. Winton, yeah, yeah. Winton Marsalis. They're working really hard to try to, you know, cultivate the next, next, ge- next generation of jazz musicians. But quite honestly, hip hop is generating, it's an incubator for all these artists. So much easier, right? And I, and I think so, I, I would be inclined to believe you and to agree with you on that. And you know, it's a new thought that I had. I didn't, it's, it just came, it kind of came to me because just thinking about these shows and trying to put these shows together, it, it's, I'm surprised that I would even say that, but I, but I think it's true. Uh, think about the longevity, its impact, and um, I feel like we should be saying more and doing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to this 50th anniversary, yes. you know, the Grammys did that little thing. And mm-hmm. I feel like we should be be doing more to celebrate, you know, this music culture and it, it's music, it's culture, it's a vibe, it's a way of being, mm-hmm. it, it's all of those things, hip hop. Uh, what do you think resonates with people about this music? Because once it goes global, right. And then also, in the U.S., um, white Americans start their bracing and at one point are buying more hip-hop records than mm-hmm. black folks. Yep. So what resonates with people? As a scholar of rhetor- rhetoric, what do you think uh, resonates with people so much uh, about the music and the culture? I'm going to – what I will – what I will identify first is – 
the authenticity and creativity and self-expression of hip hop. I think that transcends a lot of boundaries. Being able to give voice to your own experience in this artistic uh, artistic form, the expression. So you know, when for me, when my when I'm nodding my head, when I'm head nodding to a track, and it is this seductive combination of the beat, the bass line, and the lyrics of the MC that are woven together. Some of so whatever top five or ten songs people have, I think there's some bit of this formula where the voice of the MC and all of the like kind of cultural weight of the music that travels along with it is uh is intoxicating. And I think people are attracted to that. And that resonates with folks, the the ways in which this is like living art. The second part mm. I'll say is, and this is where for me, I, I can attribute to my own emerging consciousness about the Black condition in America. I do think that hip hop as a form of protest music and in its social consciousness is attractive to folks across the globe. And I think I can remember in college when I first heard about this like Korean or South Korean uh, hip hop cipher where all these South Korean kids were gathering on a street corner and spitting rhymes and practicing what they'd seen in the global media. Um, part of why people assemble to do that is that that something there about like self-determination and social criticism and uh, speaking truth to power all resonated with folks. And, and I do think that's you know, part of the, I remember in our day, the part of the controversy around hip hop was this kind of rift between people who were rappers who were coming on the scene to just make dough and and be recognized and uh, were were wearing gold chains and flashy and the afrocentric like here I'm thinking of native tongues the afrocentric artist like De La Soul and BDP and Public Enemy who are saying this music's got to be about something like we I remember and I hate date myself because I sound like an old man, which I am. <laughs> but <laughs> no, you're not. I'm I'm old, I'm aging. All right, I'll call it that. <laughs> but you know, hip hop's 50 and I'm 53. So I like really grew up with the emerging with the hip hop, right? But what did we start hearing around the 1992 is what we heard about oh hip hop's different now and nobody's singing about anything. The lyrics are, you know, lyrics are weak and everybody's singing like it makes that like it's mall music. Like it, it's been the, the fear was always crossing over and there was the stream of performers and artists who are trying to hang on to and retain the social core, the consciousness, the Afrocentric consciousness of hip hop. And then sure. there were other artists and not to call people out, but like, um, <laughs> You know, like what was my man's name? Uh, uh, Young MC. I hate to pick on him, but because I think he reformed himself a little bit later, if I remember. But you know, people like Young Young MC and 
Chub Rock, look, I don't like to pick on people by name either, but you know, Chub Rock and Young MC, these were all these like crossover hit, uh, hits that people were, at least in the black community, were skeptical about where they fit in. And then you brought up the issue, and I, I'm happy to go there if you want to, uh, the issue of, of um, white artists, white rap artists, and the audience. So consumption patterns among um, white identified listeners. And uh, I'm going to, you know, I have to admit that Beastie Boys album, the, the first one, uh, that, was, that, was in, that was in the spirit of Run DMC and P, um, EPMD and all the bands of the time. Now, my question is, did it gain as much popularity because of the lyrics and their skill or because they were right white presenting. I don't know. We, again, you lead the way, Hattie, tell me where you want to go, but we can talk no, about I, that. I, I think that's valid. It's just, um, I mean, whenever I teach my Spike Lee course, we obviously talk about post the post soul aesthetic, black aesthetic, and, and not Scotta include music, right? Discussion of music. So we start to get on the discussion of Eminem. And I talk about, well, Dr. Dre and others like Run DMC are thinking to themselves. I mean, folks are chasing the pop dollar. Right. You know, just like um, uh, Kanye West, Mm -hmm. right? When you look at his trajectory, right, and the turn he makes, I'll say the pop turn in hip hop that you see with Run DMC, who who kind of, they're given credit, but it's kind of like, oh, they went that way mm-hmm. towards pop rock music and lost their legitimacy in a sense. So, you know, when I, in that, so in that class, I sort of tell students that, you know, I, I always say to them and they get mad at me and say, y'all act like Eminem created <laughs> rap music. <laughs> I was like, Dr. Dre created Eminem. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, there are people in the industry who realize that if we're going to chase some real money, you know, we have to put a white face on it and to market it. Right. And look, here's where let's do some nuance here because it's complex because I had this conversation with my brother, too, about Eminem because we were talking about um, – authenticity and ownership and and authorship in hip hop. And he maintains that Eminem is as skilled a rapper as anyone in the game. And I begrudgingly agree because I personally don't care for him and his style, (laughs) but I know he's got hits and I know he's, he has been, um, He's been under the wing of some really important hip hop um, pioneers and 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 real players in in the culture of hip hop. My thing is, so my thing is not of so much about him because I do hear him in a fair minded way. I will say I hear him giving credit back to his influences and where he learned the craft. But what I am interested in is the audience and the consumption of hip hop. And as you mentioned earlier, in the the trend lines in the mid to late 80s and early 90s, that there were more white consumers like putting money down at Sam Goody to buy CDs and records than and then and then people of color, African Americans, right? And I think there that the at least in terms of 
um, streaming and uh, and performance that that's holding up, maybe not to the same extent, but it's holding up today, right? And so my question is, the, is because the audience is asking for rap and hip hop to look more like them, Eminem has a stature. Mm. Or at least part of the audience, white presenting audience is saying, look, I love this music. And and I feel for people here, and especially in this metro New York area, so young people who claim to have grown up with hip-hop because it's global music, it is the case you probably did grow up with hip-hop as part of the soundtrack of your life. The real question is about the cultural appropriations that the cultural appropriation that's attending that, like there's more to unpack for us. And again, we may not have space in this, in this, this discussion to do that, but yeah, real interesting stuff. I always uh, show, so I show a clip from Jamie Kennedy's um, kind of spoof of, of Eminem and uh, Malibu's most wanted. Right. <laughs> do you, did I really get them mad at me? They're like, no, Professor Williams, don't go. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, who do you think he's spoofing? Right. This this uh, white comedian. And I agree with you. Eminem has skills. I don't think that he would have been taken under the wing of some of the best in the game if he didn't have skills, right? Can we talk about Vanilla Ice? Oof. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just running for a minute. Just- yeah. Look, man, look. At the time... <laughs> He was in the right place at the right time because I remember one of the most memorable um, radio shows in my I remember growing up. And here I'm going to give a shout out to DJ Red Alert and DJ Funkmaster Flex. Let me talk about those two, along with presenting to me as an audience member, a radio listener, to bring in hip hop, bring in hip hop to me. Cause look, look, I grew up in Asbury. We, I did not grow up in in the city in New York where the culture was like percolating. It drifted down, you know, the radio waves drifted down the shore to Monmouth County, and I, I I listened a lot. And then I heard people talking the other day um, when I was doing research for this about rushing to your radio to throw a cassette in so you could tape tape the Red Alert show. And I That's know right. we did it. <laughs> And we my, did. I did. Yep, and I used to bring it to school. For real. Like, y'all don't know. Yeah, y'all just don't know. So, you know, Flex, so one of the things, Funkmaster Flex was doing like the end of the week, like top 10. And my man Vanilla Ice made number three or something like that. And and because he had a duty to play it, Flex played it. But I remember this like it was yesterday. He was starting to chuckle and he said, come on, y'all. Come on. Ice, ice, baby. <laughs> he was like, come on, y'all, talking about the audience to say, look, he's like, I'm going to do it. I got to play it. But coming in at number three is my man, right? So he, but so, and then, <laughs> oh, so, funny. so there wasn't, but he was in a time. So he merged when there was uh, a surge of that kind of pop crossover hip hop that people, you know, it uncritically sort of started to consume. And I think he like fizzled because he couldn't keep it up, right? He if if they manufactured Vanilla Ice got manufactured and his high top fade started to grow in, he then also sort of drifted off. And look, I don't know much about where his artistic life took him beyond that, 
you know, behind that period of time. But I just know for me, it was a, a, a blip on the screen. We, we all kind of s- chuckled and said, Hey, here, 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 here comes another one trying to work their way in. Um, but you know, third base was another one of those bands. So just kind of citing the, the, the racialized component of hip hop. So here, where are, cause there's a more of people like Vanilla Ice and Eminem, like third base was one of those bands too, from this era that was kind of like a one hit wonder. They might've had two albums. Um, they had that gas face song and I'm telling you that was a big hit cause people were playing it in the clubs, but it didn't right. have lasting power. And neither did they, right? You know, they'd kind of cycle through and then disappeared. Yeah, and no, all great points. I think it made me think of another question that kind of wasn't one of our original, okay. but it just made me think about why it took so long or 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 do we even have a legitimate white woman uh, rapper? Like it took decades after that, even after, you know, Eminem popped on the scene. If we, I mean, cause that segues into our question about the lady MCs of the eighties, you know, like salt and pepper yeah. and, and, um, MC light. Yeah. MC light, Moni love. Yep. Lil Kim, Latifah, of course. That's right. Missy like Elliott coming in at quarter tail end, Missy Elliott. And of course, the legend Lauren Hill, who is the most award, right. you know, sure. obviously the Fugees and Lauren Hill were were and Jersey, you know, obviously representing Jersey hard in the scene. Um yeah. And there was no white woman rapper of that era, correct None, me if I'm wrong. I, like, I, I can't seem to recall. I'm gonna tell yeah, you I have to go back yeah, and say no, I would yeah, I, I would have to so. do some research on that too. I'm gonna say my in my from my vantage point, I remember the early Black Eyed Peas, and I don't remember this woman's name. She's still popular. I, I feel like she's still out there because I don't. I kind of lost track of Black Eyed Peas when they got too big and too too commercialized. But Black Eyed Peas had their, this woman who was white presenting. She may have had Latinx like heritage or so, but she was was in that. Uh, and I think uh, Angie Martinez. The DJ uh, from right. from ninety eight point seven Kiss is as I think the Latinx hip hop influence. That's as close as we see, at least in terms of female MCs. That there are there are because because uh, um, Angie Martinez was performing on albums with artists too and doing something, but I can't recall. Um, a white female rapper, at least in the States. I know there are several in Great Britain, in the UK, and in Australia, but I don't know of a US, you know, sort of US context, white female rappers. Yeah, because Iggy Azalea, like, I don't know enough about her to know if she's good or bad. Mm. I just don't, like, I think she's from Australia. I don't have a enough information about her or, or if she's even considered good. And I think her album, her first album was like 2014. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, yeah, you know, decades after, you know, the rise of the lady MCs. I, I say that the, the, the ladies like um, Queen Latifah calling the men out and you and I T Y. Yeah. Yep. And using the art of specifying, mm-hmm. And, you know, calling the men out for for calling 
women to be in the H right. word, just going hard, mm-hmm. calling calling these these men out. And I think like Salt and Pepper's album also like their work was coming out in '86 too. Right. So we had like Push It is coming out in '86. So I'm. Like these women are just as important. So talk to me about the lady MCs and some of your well, favorite uh, yeah, women. Well, so I want to say, you know, because I'm such a big Karis one uh, devotee and fan, and and Boogie Down Productions was like very formative for me because I I bought that cassette, the um, Criminal Minded, on cassette at some like pop up record store in Asbury. I remember down on uh, on uh, it was on Cookman Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> and some dude just opened up a short store, store and had all this stuff in there. Um, but because of that time, like around that time, I remember Rock that Roxanne Chante um That's right. influence yeah. to me to, so, so of course women were in the margins, although they were doing hard artistic work in hip hop from the beginning. They were on the margins as far as like recognition, public recognition. But Roxanne Chante for me was what I remember is that she had skills. You know, she was going toe-to-toe, but what they did, and I'm not sure if this was, uh, uh, to what extent this was, like, intentional or just hap- uh, coincidence, happenstance. But it always ended up that it was like the the second bill, right? It was Roxanne, uh, Roxanne Chante going to battle, an MC battle with another female rapper but that was a sideshow to the real central male hip-hop battles and the emceeing right and then so there was this demarcation where women were kind of relegated to like the b-side of an album even right or five or six or seven tracks in until salt and pepper and mc light and i f- don't forget eve i forgot i had eve yeah, down here that's too right. eve and lil yeah. kim and queen latifah and moni love started to insert themselves as legitimate rappers and said look we're not just coming in singing backup and or being on a, the b-side of the album and i am a huge missy elliott fan and i feel like there is where you are seeing her you know, sort of claiming center stage artistically and uh, in terms of her craft as a rapper, it's uh, she's, she's, she's insanely good to me. And I feel like that. And look, Lauren Hill is hands down demonstrated her, uh, her, her flexibility as a, cause she sings and raps and, the art and the narration, the narrative of so her work with the Fugees and then her own in in uh, solo album Miseducation that just that's a top five album right there, Lauren Hill's sure. album right. So I think we had a window of time in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, where f- female rappers were able to command attention and sales. On their own. Now, I can't really speak. I don't know what's happened since then. <laughs> I'm just going to say, um, <laughs> I think I'm really interested to see who you secure to talk about 2000 to 2023 with female rappers and, and rap music in this era. Because I think there is so much really fascinating 
gender and sex and identity work going on in hip hop right now. Um, and, and I, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where like people who are thinking actively and doing criticism and critique of contemporary hip hop. Cause I hear Cardi B and I hear her and like both hear her and hear her. So I hear what she's saying and like her message and I hear her story. And as a person who identifies as working class and, and have his interest in class and social stratification, I'm saying to Cardi B from my vantage point of a golden era hip hop head, you go ahead and get yours. But I also do know we have to problematize some of what's Mm -hmm. emerged in, in contemporary hip hop. No, I I completely agree. And the lady MCs of the eighties and nineties had skills. Mm -hmm. Like they weren't twerking. They didn't have to twerk to get, to get, you know, clicks and, Giggles. Right. They they were doing the work. They were really good MCs and rappers. Whereas today, I'm not a fan. You know, I'm a fan of Chica. I'm a fan of Rhapsody. Okay. And they have skills, mm-hmm. but they're not at the forefront. I mean, Chica got famous on her own by responding to Kanye West right. on Twitter. And so she she blew up after that. But even now, a lot of people don't know who Chica is or Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're really you work schooled on the music, right. they don't like the ones with the skills are not what mm-hmm. we put forward. And there are even a move to turn Queen Latifah into a cover girl. Right. Like she's literally a cover girl. Yeah, well, so to kind of move away from these women with skills to the party girl. So what are your thoughts? And I don't want to take over your line of questioning, but since we're here, I want to ask about um, Vibe magazine and the magazines emerge in this golden era too. Um, What was the other one? What was the other one? Double XL or I forget. No, what was the other? Um, There's another hip hop. There's a couple. Well, Spin magazine obviously started to turn Mm -hmm. their attention to hip hop and, and the, like music journalists were starting to make it center, center it in this era a bit more. Um, but vibe magazine. Uh, so my question for you is like, okay, so these magazines started to accelerate and this is my, my interpretation started. To word ex- up. Remember that? What's that? You remember word up? Oh yeah. And word up magazine too. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right>. Yes. <laughs> um, so they accelerated the commercialism of hip hop, right? Because here folks are saying, I just want to MC. I have like, I want, I'm an artist and I'm trying to do my art. But if I get a video and I get a cover of a vibe, now I'm a celebrity. And my question to you is, do you mm-hmm. think the emergence of these, these artifacts of pop culture help or hurt? hip hop overall coming out of this era. So we're just like sort of focusing on this golden era where every, every artist we mentioned earlier, were putting out like foundational slamming dope, dope albums and tracks. Like, you know, that was happening. Right. So where we end up in, let's call it 1995 <laughs> coming out of the eighties, 95, 96, 97, um, do you, what do you think the contribution of like publications like Vibe 
played to uh, uh, in effect in hip hop? Well, I think, like we said, this golden age, it's called that because there's this transition where it becomes global. And I think communication media, like magazines, you know, we named a few like Vibe, Vibe, The Source. Oh, The Source, Word that's Up. the one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Double XL, uh, Hip Hop Connection. I, I think that they become celebrity icons. They become iconic mm-hmm. as a result of what well, we said music video prior to that and then these magazines and so there's this celebrity culture and I write about that in a short essay that I wrote for HuffPost a couple of years ago when I was talking about how around this time the 80s and 90s is when uh Donald Trump is kind of courting courting all of these rappers yeah and mm. he shows up in like over 50 songs and they're like celebrating Mm -hmm. him Mm -hmm. and um, they're calling him a gangster. And they're, they basically are like, Oh yeah, he's a thug. Like it's, and they're saying this about him and celebrating him in their songs. And so everybody's like, Oh, why is Kanye West at the white house? He has this long Mm -hmm. history of appearing in rap songs and celebrating the thug life. It's so interesting you mentioned this and that you and I'm gonna go Somebody find your it. article uh, find that post. I wanna read that because part of what I know about my experience of what has been come to been called East Coast rap, but like this New York centric mm. hip hop culture, it starts as folk culture, right? It's folk art, it develops and gains popularity and it is a viable art form and it is, a, yeah, it becomes a platform for people to like make money, right? And earn a living. You yeah. you could earn a living being a rapper or an MC or DJ uh, and you obviously still can't today. But it, it, to me, emerged in this period as like, all right, if I, if I put the time in, I can like really make a, make a, make a name for myself in the game. And of course, because it's New York centric, that the who are the titans of industry in the Reagan eighties in New York, and it so it makes complete sense that the rappers and MCs and artists in and around New York Metro are saying this Trump guy is like that's where we're going. Like I want to have that kind of dough. I want to make that kind of money. I and they, and and understanding how he got there <laughs> it also gives right. fuel to 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 like the the side eye of how, you know, he's a, he's a gangster, right? But that mm-hmm. is but that's how to get there. So it makes sense. Uh yeah, that's really insightful. Yeah, there's so that my article is how Trump became a thug life idol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even from that era, one of the phrases, get rich or die trying. Yes, that's right. I totally remember that. Yep. Well, this is that Biggie Small. That's Biggie's, right? So that's that's, that's Notorious B.I.G. And and big up to my West Indian rapper. So, you know, he comes in on the scene talking about, look, I'm about the dough, man. This is about cash. And and then, right. So, like, you know, that's right. And talking to our friend Vernon Smith about is how it connects to these so many of these young men know they're not going to live to see 40. Yes. And so many of these artists that we discussed have died. Mm-hmm. Some many of them died at age 50 yeah. or before. I know Bismarck he was 57. I just I, I remember it 
vividly when the news came across. I was like, not my man Biz, but, you know, he's a young man. Yeah, and that's what that just, that phrase means. Get rich or die trying. Mm-hmm. Get as much money as you can. And it, 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 it is reflective of a moment in history, right. you know, the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, when we get this turn away from the golden age to gangster rap. And um, I, as we get to our conclusion here and, you know, I love, I couldn't find my copy of uh, Christina Sharp's book uh, where she talks about this idea of living in the wake. And when you look at the albums, look at um, Biggie Smalls album or, or even look at um, Tupac Shakur as we make our turn into the nineties, uh, the cover is him standing in front of a hearse. Right. Like, yeah. I'm probably not going to live long. So guess what? I'm going to live well for the short time I'm on this planet. And how old was he? Was he in his late 30s? Mm-hmm. When he, was he even? I can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, but yeah. he's young. So, so this is, these are men who realize, look, we're probably going to get killed. We're not going to, to live very long. So we're going to live well while we can't. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, um, you know, sort of sentiment that we get. Yeah, so he died. So he was born in 1972. He died in 1997. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, and he's like that album before he dies. You you see the cover of that album. Every time I look at it, I think of this idea of what it means to live in the wake. And um, it's like the afterlives, mm-hmm. right, of slavery right. and. Um, still trying to say, you know, I'm here. Yes. Right. So can I give you so, a, a site? A sure, real, give me a your quick, thoughts. A quick, well, a quick, um, like, inflection point for me, because uh, I remember my brother and I listening to this this these, this rap group and being like, where is, what is going on? So remember the Ghetto Boys? Mm-hmm, and this sure. is the Southern, so now we're talking about Southern the Southern yes. hip hop. So now we're going back Atlanta and the dirty South. dirty South. Right. So I'm, I'm, so let's go South and West to talk about, uh, uh, gangster rap and, and just this nihilistic rap music that I, that's what I called it. It's Afro pessimism. And Afro pessimism. Right. That's what it is. And so ghetto boys, I remember my brother and I listening to the album because we there was one hit that we heard and we're like all right just let's just get it we'll get the album and you know and i'm telling you that was some that's some like gritty grimy stuff right uh but the reality of so what i think happens you know in new york because it's a global economic capital some things can get obscured some of the poverty and the um, deprivation and the disparity can get massed around all the affluence but in the South, and then I will say going out West too, um, the proximity to poverty and, and the afterlife of slavery, as you mentioned, that stuff's front and center. And I think these artists were like, okay, I got these CDs or cassettes from these rappers up in New York way, and I, I love this art form, but I'm going to sing about what I see and what I'm living through and what I'm experiencing. And that's, I think, how you, for me, where I saw it emerge. And and I love this PBS special that's going on without, you know, sort of yes. going into detail about it, because it's a really nice um, chronicling of the social and political 
and cultural forces that gave rise to gangster rap uh, in the West. And I haven't finished it, so I gotta, I kind of gotta get back to it. But Nelson George has been writing really prolifically about hip hop over his career, and and I think this is you know part of it, it is uh, you know I, I lament the 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 loss of the consciousness rap and the Afro, the native tongues Afrocentric rap of like the mid eight late eighties. So I still all pretty much all I listen to now um mm. but i see that times have changed like the context has changed for so many people and the and and the art form has evolved and like uh transformed to like rap getting into the rap games not what it was is what it was like then either i like um and this is going to be our last comment i guess as we end here kendrick lamar i think mm. uh you know, has kind of stepped into a space, I feel. Yeah, I agree. He definitely has. I need to listen to more of his dis- uh, discography, his his catalog, because I've heard the right. hits, but I haven't really gone right, in, sure. d- in depth to hear, like, a, you know, album treatment of, of his narratives and his message. But I do admire what he's doing. And Talib could, uh, um, uh, not well. Who formerly? Uh, so I know. Uh, what's my man's name? And I just totally slipped my mind. Sorry to end on a, a senior <laughs> moment here, but uh, most <laughs> no, deaf. Right. Yes, most yes, deaf yes, to yes, me. Yes. He's still doing. I call him most deaf. I know he's 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 going by a different name now, but um, I feel like that 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 is the 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 legacy sort of antecedents of that consciousness rap is still they're still trying to find a hole and look Karis one's still doing stuff so i i definitely know yeah um that their voices are out there just trying to find a stronghold in this commercial market yeah most stuff is yasin bay yes now. yasin bay thank you i could not remember but no so i think there's so much to say i think like you said this could easily be and it is a series actually in which we're going to look at different eras and moments in hip-hop. But I want to thank Professor Taylor for joining the show today. Oh, Hetty, this was great, and and I appreciate the, the... I just imagine us sitting at the stoop with our boombox just trading cassettes and doing our thing. That's right. <laughs>